Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign up. This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Chris Brikey is the founder of Stockspot, Australia's largest robo-investment advisor. Chris is a very intelligent, evidence-based investor. He's a big advocate for investing via index funds and ETFs and keeping costs low both inside and outside of super. Chris is a member of the Cancer Council's Investment Committee and ASIC's Board for Digital Innovation. I could have chatted to Chris for hours because I really enjoyed his candor and insights on portfolio management. I think every investor, beginner to advance, should consider his insights in developing robust portfolio management strategies of their own. To begin, 
Chris and I discuss a tense investing conversation he had live on television. Chris, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks, Owen. Um, I thought I'd start off this conversation in a little bit of an unusual manner. I was watching, I was fortunate to be at home working last week with my partner, my wife, who was sitting on the couch as we were having lunch. And I saw you on the, the TV and I thought, geez, that's, there's Chris. I'm going to c- catch up with him next week. And you were talking to um, a few different guys about beginner investing, you being an ETF guy, uh, robo advice, stock spot. I think it was a little bit hard for them to stomach some of the things that you're coming out with. Well, yeah, I'm pretty used to it. Um, yeah, working in an industry now where a lot of the players in the industry don't agree with you know, my view on how to invest. But yeah, I ended up on a panel with uh, essentially three stock pickers, three very well spoken and very experienced stock pickers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I came on and I came on with my five tips on how to invest. And uh, yeah, one, one of them was to diversify. One of them was to not pick stocks. And, and I think one of the other ones was to uh, ignore analyst predictions. And, and I, I think I offended a few people with those. <laughs> oh, well, that's a great way to um, break the ice with those people. And, and um, I may be, it, made good, it made for good TV in any case. My, wife, my wife's takeaway from that was, geez, that was tense. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think that's what they want on TV. I think that's probably why I got invited back because it made for some interesting TV. Probably too often everyone just agrees um, with each other. That's so. right. You've got to find people that disagree, right? That's how you have a good debate. That's it. Um, okay, so let's go back to the start. Where did your journey start um, as a youngster? Were you interested in finance or money? or? Well, yeah, my, my journey started pretty young actually in, in the investing world. So I was, I think, at the age of 10 or 11, my old man sat me down with a newspaper and he invested his self-managed super. He wasn't in the industry and, mm-hmm. and explained to me how the share market worked, that yep. essentially you could buy a piece of a business that you, you know, might, um, you know, come in contact with every day. And I thought that was pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, where my journey started. Dad then said, look, Chris, you can have a thousand dollars and invest in any stock you choose in the market. So I, I sat down and, and researched and, and read the paper for a few few weeks and you know started to look at charts and I think I went on to hot copper was around at the time the very early days of hot copper so tried to learn which stock to buy I picked one I bought it I I held it for a period of time Uh, I told dad when I wanted to sell it Mm -hmm. um, and and wanted to lock in a a bit of profit to take away and probably spend on I don't know whatever 11 year olds spend money on right Um, and and then dad broke the news to me that he didn't actually invest the money (laughs) that it was just an exercise and I think that infuriated me so much it made me even more uh, passionate about learning about investing. Do you remember what the stock was? Uh, yeah, the first couple, I can't, there was one called Savage Resources and one called Ashton Diamonds. And, and then I think MIM was among the first ones I owned. So it was back in the late 90s. Um, mm-hmm. I think resources were pretty popular at the time. It was pre the tech boom. So it was, right. I think it was 96 or 97. <laughs> so was he a big mentor to you in terms of encouraging you on this journey towards learning about finance and investing? Well, I think with any, I mean, always with your parents, you, especially when you're young, you think they know everything. So yeah. like I, I obviously thought his knowledge about the stock market was enormous when he first sort of explained these things. But, you know, uh, what, I guess what I've sort of later realized in my career is there are a lot of people that, you know, are managing their own money and, and, and often managing a lot of money um, in investing, but actually have you know not a lot of knowledge relative to all of the knowledge there is to get about investing. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's probably one of my biggest takeouts over the last you know, 20 years or so is that, you know, people's perception about their knowledge about investing is often very different to their actual knowledge about <laughs> investing. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think my dad sort of, you know, probably realized that during the financial crisis and other times where, you know, you go into these things thinking that you're in control and you have, you know, a, a good understanding of, you know, what sort of risk 
you own and, and what sort of performance you can expect. And, and when the outcome is very different, that often humbles you and, and makes, makes you realize that you knew less than you actually did. So yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I spent a lot more time researching than he did. Even during high school, I, I was right. every afternoon, you know, on, on the computer or at the mm-hmm. library at school, um, you know, reading and learning about investing and how to value companies and you know what made the market tick. And and so, yeah, I mean, he he was working a full time job, uh, you know, as a dentist, mm-hmm. so uh, he oh. didn't have as much time as me to learn <laughs> for sure. Uh, what, I'm curious to know because this is, I think, it's such an important thing if you're a youngster to have someone mentor you or just even to put that planet seed in your brain. What do you think it was about finance when you were so young that, and investing specifically that kept you motivated to learn more? I think there was a few things. I mean, I think the concept of being able to own a piece of a business is amazing. And I think the ones, you know, even though I bought resource stocks at the start, the way Dad illustrated it was with companies like Billabong or Woolworths or Coca-Cola. Yep. And, and these are all businesses that, you know, I, I kind of you know, had something to do with every day. I had my Billabong shorts or I went to Woolies with mum, mm-hmm. you know, to buy a Coke. So I always thought it was amazing that you know you could get some money and then you could give it to this business and, and then by giving it to that business you, you're essentially an owner in that business and you mm-hmm. can share in their success and so you know you could both be a user of products in the world but then also a owner of products in the world mm. um, so I, I mean I thought that was amazing I think there was also some sort of financial incentive um, you know going through high school a lot of my friends would be working at Woolworths or David Jones um, to earn some extra pocket money um, you know the stock market to me seemed like a great lazy man's way to make money i didn't have to leave the house because internet trading was just coming coming about um during high school i entered the school share trading game a few times mainly because there was great prize money on offer and (laughs) and i thought that was a much better way to to earn pocket money so um yeah i mean there there was some financial incentive but also i just thought it was a great thing to learn and and really to me the stock market is like a fascinating puzzle um, and a puzzle that I've learned over my life that isn't just about, you know, maths or statistics or economics, but also, you know, has elements of psychology and biology in it. And, and so, you know, that it, it's, it's not just um, one form of science, it's all sorts of sciences and social sciences combined. Yeah, indeed it is. Um, let's fast forward a bit in your journey and, and uh, you went to uni at UNSW, accounting and finance, was it? Yep, that's right. Yep. Um, what was your first job out of uni? Uh, so my first job out of uni actually came about because at university there was a share trading competition, funnily okay. enough. It yep. was the JP Morgan trading competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I managed to win that in university, oh, nice. um, I, I think a couple of times. Um, but I didn't realize that there, there was actually a business that was running this game, even though JP Morgan sponsored it, and, and it was a hedge fund. And, and the hedge fund actually used the game to identify good traders out there. Um, so I was fortunate enough to, um, yeah, meet this hedge fund, you know, while I was studying at university. Um, I didn't even know what a hedge fund was at the time. I actually remember going onto the computer before I met with um, this business to look up what a hedge fund was. Um, but, you know, I, I worked out that this was, you know, in, in the sort of area that I was interested in. I always thought I wanted to be a stockbroker, but then I think I learned that stockbroking was about selling stock ideas to people, whereas hedge mm. funds were about actually implementing them yourself. Um, and, and I was lucky then to actually get a job with this hedge fund um, trading shares while I was at university. So I would go in two days a week to trade shares and, and three days a week I'd be at UNSW studying how to trade shares. Wow. That's, well, that's a great. You got the experience. You got the you know, theoretical underpinning as well. Um, when did you move to U- UBS? 
Uh, so my first grad job was then at UBS. So okay. straight after leaving university, I, I was fortunate to get into their, um, I think it was their internship over summer, mm-hmm. um, where I was on their equities floor. And then after that, um, a lot of those interns then end up in their grad program. So I think at the time, UBS had a pretty massive grad program mm-hmm. um, ac- across all the banks in Australia. I think they were maybe number two only to Macquarie Bank in terms of how many people they accepted. Mm. I think our year was 40 people. Um, which yeah, for anyone that's a grad now will know that's a lot of yeah. people and, and the banks generally take a lot fewer these days. Um, and, and that was just such an amazing experience. So, you know, we, yeah, this was at the height of the last sort of financial boom and banks had a lot of money to spend on graduates. Um, so they sent all 40 of us to London for six weeks uh, for training, wow. uh, put us up in incredible apartments. Um, they, they sent us out to you know, lovely restaurants every night. They put us on the London, London Eye, um, having champagne and caviar. Like they were schmoozing us, wow. um, you know, like we'll probably never see for another 20 years. Yep. <laughs> um, so it was a, a pretty, yeah, a pretty amazing way to enter the industry. Mm. Um, but then, you know, reality struck pretty quickly because that was 2007. And, and by 2008, um, half of the grads had lost their jobs. Um, you know, I, I was very close to probably losing mine as well. Um, and, and yeah, reality set in in the industry. <laughs> wow. Um, how long were you there for? Uh, so I was there then, I think, till 2012. Um, yeah, I, I ended up in what was the proprietary trading desk of the bank, which mm-hmm. was um, a, a segregated area away from the trading floor and away from the people that speak to the, um, you know, the, the, the fund managers. And we were actually managing the bank's balance sheet or managing yep. a part of the bank's balance sheet um, with the essentially the sole mandate to you know, create more value. So yep. to, to trade that balance sheet to make more money. Um, it, it was a pretty successful part of the bank um, and, and actually survived the financial crisis. You know, we actually had good years, um, you know, mm-hmm. when markets were volatile. Um, unfortunately, um, something happened in the UK in 2000 and t- 2011 or 12 where uh, another trader who, who sat outside of our business um, fraudulently lost $2 billion. Wow. Um, you know, he ended up going to jail in the UK. Um, but as a result of that, um, the, biz- the bank decided to shut down our division um, in Australia and around the world. So, you know, like many of the US banks, um, UBS no longer has proprietary trading. Right. So then you've lost your job, presumably. What, what did you do then? Uh, yeah, so I was, I was made redundant for the first time, which was, a, you know, probably mm. a good experience for a young person and, and got to sort of think about what I wanted to do. I, I actually sp- uh, spent a little bit of time then going back to that hedge fund again, um, you know, to, to do more trading, which is, you know, what I'd gained experience in. But I think at, at the same time, I started to um, think about the business concept of what is now Stockspot. Um, you know, I, I thought there was a great opportunity um, that had come about, you know, partly because of the financial crisis and, and people losing trust in traditional fund managers, mm-hmm. um, you know, partly because technology was starting to reshape financial services and, and it had in lots of other industries. Um, and, and yeah, I thought financial services was an industry that hadn't changed very fast or very far in 20 or 30 years. And there was probably a once in a generation um, chance to actually step out of a, a more secure job to do something entrepreneurial. I'm always interested to know and to drill into that, that moment when you think I've got this idea and I'm going to leave this job, this presumably well-paying job behind, and I'm going to pursue that. When did you have that light bulb moment that, and I suppose that rush of blood and you felt, okay, I can do this? 
I think they're probably separate. Like the idea, you know, made me very excited of, of, of you know, being able to offer you know, the business model that I'd thought of. I, I mm-hmm. thought that was very exciting. And I spent a lot of my spare time, you know, trying to think about the business model, looking at, you know, other places in the world where it was operating, you know, thinking about the Australian market, doing market research, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um but you're right, then there's the reality of actually to pursue something like that, you, you have to take a big risk in your life. Mm. Um, and, and that risk, you know, if you're coming often from a financial job, you know, it comes with a big opportunity cost. You have to accept that you're not going to have a salary, you know, either, either for a long time or, you know, hopefully not for that long. Um, it's often harder to get back into the industry if, if mm. you leave it. Um, and, and yeah, it, that was a tough decision, but ultimately I thought it was a great time in my life to do it because, um, I, I was, you know, still in my late twenties, so I was, you know, pretty young. I, I didn't have any um, kids, so I didn't feel that sort of level of commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, I thought if there was ever a time in your life to take a big risk, it's you know while you don't have a lot of um, liabilities that you while you can recover. Yeah, while you can recover, and mm-hmm. and I thought I had a few years to give something a go, and and if nothing else, I'd have a good business experience and learn about a lot of areas of business that you don't as a trader. Mm. I think a lot of people that end up as um, in share traders or fund managers, probably one of their biggest shortcomings is they've never run a business themselves. Mm. You know, So you can yeah. understand EBIT margins and you can understand all of the uh, metrics that drive a business, but without actually being part of a business or running a business, it's really hard to you know, understand how they actually work in reality. So mm. I-, I thought, look, even if this business doesn't succeed, at least I'll learn about how businesses work. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, an incredible idea, actually having the operational experience and knowing what goes into the, the grind every day, the long nights, the early mornings. It's um, it's really, I think it's undervalued in the financial community, which is surprising. Yeah, I think, I mean, you'd understand that now as well. And, and it's tough, like you, you underestimate how hard it is and how many um, different hats you have to wear to run, run, run a business. And, and I used to think that my job as a trader was chaotic because you'd come to work every day and not know what to expect. Mm. I mean, that was part of the excitement. But I think, you know, the one job that probably could be more chaotic in the world is an entrepreneur because mm. there's even more variables that you, you know, that you have no control over and, and you're constantly fighting to, to, to get on top of. Absolutely. Okay. So let's give us the, give us the 30,000 foot view of Stockspot, what it is today. And maybe you can start by saying, why is it called Stockspot? Uh, yeah, sure. So the story of naming a business, I mean, anyone that started a business will have gone through this process of going, okay, I've I've got an idea. I know what I'm going to do. You know, I need a name for this thing. And there's all sorts of, you know, books and blogs and, and, um, you know, stuff written about how to name a business. Um, yeah, I think for me, like, well, I mean, one of them is obviously you need to find a business these days where there's available domain and, and, and a business name that you can take. Um, I knew that this business was going to be primarily investing in ETFs, low cost index funds, but I also knew that very few people knew what they were. So, you know, having, having mm. ETF in a name, you know, probably wasn't very useful. Um, and, and most people, when they think about investing, they think about shares or stocks. You know, I, I also thought that names with like alliteration are, are more memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I thought, okay, well, you know, this is the spot that you're going to come to buy your stocks. Um, and, and that's how it came about. Um, yep. you know, in, in retrospect, it can be interpreted in many other ways. And, and, and unfortunately, there's lots of similar names. So, uh, you know, I of, it often gets called um, Stockpot. Um, <laughs> okay. you know, so much so that if anyone ever comes across our 404 page, um, there's a little Easter egg there, which is a link to the Victoria's Basement website for anyone that's lost and actually wants to buy a Stockpot. Okay. <laughs> that's great. So let's imagine I'm one of the listeners... What does Stockspot do? 
So Stockspot is a simple online um, fund manager that will help you pick the right investments and manage them for you. So okay. you know we're trying to tackle the problem that first of all a lot of people are too frightened to invest. You know that they have spare money, but it's stuck in bank accounts and places not earning a, a great return because you know that they fear investing and they fear the risk of investing. Um, but then there's also a lot of people out there investing on their own, but probably not doing it the right way. Um, and, and that could benefit from um, advice and expertise. So, mm. you know, we're a website. The process is pretty simple. People answer a bunch of questions about their investment objectives, their investment time frame. Uh, we try to understand their risk capacity. Um, and using this information, what we try and do is um, scour the investment universe for a portfolio that will best meet those needs. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, we believe for most people that that, that portfolio involves a, a bunch of low cost index funds, um, you know, and that's you know, supported by a lot of ev- evidence around investing. Mm. Um, however, you know, our view is that products are only part of the way there. A lot of people, you know, invest in the right products, but their behavior causes them to get unstuck. Mm. Um, so a lot of people you know, buy ETFs, but they end up trading them too often or you know, they end up chasing them when markets are hard or, or capitulating when markets fall. Um, so a lot of our job actually is actually as a financial advisor um, to you know, keep people focused on the long term um, to make sure their emotional biases don't get in the way of them earning a good return. Mm. Um, and, and we try and do that um, through an online product. So a lot of our servicing is through, through emails, through alerts, um, you know, through blogs and, mm-hmm. and other um, digital means as opposed to seeing people face-to-face. Okay. Now, with the, with the beautiful thing of hindsight, we can look back and we can say that, why, of course, you know, that's a great idea. But at the time, I imagine ETFs were just starting to, well, they were already established, but they were starting to tick upwards. Um and it sounds to me that like Stockspot involves a lot of back-end um, technology, a lot of you know coding, software, etc. Are you a tech guy? And I suppose the second part of that question is, if you aren't, how did you get the, the wheels moving? Did you have to take on capital to employ or is there someone else in the background that has been helping you this time? Uh, yeah, so there's a couple of questions there. So first of all, no, I'm not a tech guy. Um, okay. But I think with any business idea, there's all sorts of challenges in different areas of business that, you know, the, the business person who comes up with the idea isn't familiar with. So, I mean, part of starting a business is being able to solve problems in areas outside of your expertise or find people who can solve those problems for you. So mm. um, I, I had a vision of what the product should look like. Now, ultimately, a lot of the models and a lot of the ways we invest um can be built, first of all, in spreadsheets, for instance. So a lot of the early work I did was actually spreadsheet-based where I had you know, expertise and I could do it mm-hmm. um, and then later translated into code, um, right. of which I couldn't do. So you know, have a team of people now doing that. Yep. So, um, yeah, th- there was a process of, first of all, doing things more manually um, and, and then automating them as we you know, ab- were able to hire the right people and, and as we were scaling the business, um, you know, which I think is pretty common for, mm. for a lot of small businesses. Yeah, great. Um, one of the one of the things, or one of the catchphrases that get tossed around nowadays, particularly in the advice communities, is this thing called robot advice. Uh, would you? Would, is that a fair label for Stockspot to say you're a robot advisor now? Or uh, yeah, I mean, I think it is the category that we end up sort of being um, painted into. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's the best terminology because it it sort of strikes fear in people's minds. <laughs> I mean, it sort yeah. of makes people feel like they're investing in Westworld or something like that, where the, the robots are making all the decisions. Um, the reality is like the word robo really only refers to um, a lot of the automation that takes place. So, you know, one of the benefits
benefits that we can provide versus seeing a traditional advisor or you know or broker is that um, those types of people would sp- need to spend a lot of time doing tasks that don't add a lot of value, whether it was you know writing the advice statement to you or rebalancing your portfolio or reviewing your statement of advice or you know on- ongoing management of um, rebalancing or dividend reinvestment. Uh, now a lot of these processes using technology um, you you can automate, so you don't need a human overseeing it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so the robo part just relates to making a lot of processes more efficient, and, and what is more efficient mean it means you pay less in costs and what does less cost mean it means you keep more returns yourself um, so that's really the robo part but at the same time there is obviously um, and there needs to be always a level of human oversight as well so you know where people are involved is actually deciding on the allocation of different investments in the portfolio okay um, now that we base on you know, portfolio theory but it's not not a robot sort of managing that um, you know, ongoing compliance and understanding um, your clients is something that we have to manage. Um, and then speaking to clients, we have clients that get nervous sometimes or have questions or, you know, want to understand, you know, different aspects of their investing portfolio. Um, so we have a team of people that they can, they can speak to. So uh, it's really a hybrid of, you know, automation to um, make tasks more efficient um, and, and actually make the experience better for clients as well. So it allows mm-hmm. clients to see everything online, you know, 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also the, the fallback of humans where, you know, where robots, you know, haven't been able to solve everything yet. Yep, absolutely. Um, one of the, the lines on, on your website um, says that you are Australia's quote-unquote largest uh, robo-advisor. How does it feel to hear that your business has grown to be the biggest? Well, yeah, I mean, we were the first as well. So, I mean, we were the biggest from day one. I don't know if that's okay. anything to brag about because anyone can create a new category and say they're the biggest of something. Yep. I mean, the, the the positive, I think, out of it is that, you know, others are copying us, which means we've got a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the positive is that consumers are, you know, seeing this as a great, you know, product as well and, and more consumers are using it. So I don't think being the first or the biggest is something that's very valuable, especially if it's something that nobody wants. Um, I'd rather be small in something that you know a lot of people want than huge in something that people don't. Um, but yeah, this is a category that's growing pretty fast in Australia and, and around the world. So uh, I think you mentioned before that ETFs were pr- quite small when we started, which is right. So when mm-hmm. I started the business in 2013, I think the size of the ETF market in Australia was around eight billion, um, and, and last year it, it cracked through forty billion. Yeah. Um, so wow. you know that's a pretty big um, you know increase over five years or so. There's not many other areas of wealth management or asset management that have grown five times um, mm. over that period. No. Um, so it's definitely had phenomenal growth, and and yeah, it, um, you know ETFs I guess are you know a core part of our business, but robo advisors as well around the world have grown pretty phenomenally over that time. So. So in the US, you know, there's a, a few old businesses like Vanguard and, and um, Schwab that offer this now, but there's also like a new breed of robo advisors who um, are in the tens of billions in terms of, you know, in, in terms of how mm. much they manage. Now, Australia is a few years behind that. You know, we're not near there yet, um, but, but that's the direction it's heading in. Yeah, I, th- I think I, I see great things ahead and um, maybe, you know, you are the first mover in the industry, but it's um i think it's an industry that is has got tremendous tailwinds behind it so i i expect to see that um that tagline on your website for a few more years yet um so digging into your investment philosophy you've talked about etfs and they play a big part if not the part of your investment philosophy so and executing can you give us the high level view of what happens once 
uh, a client comes on board and they've invested with you, what do they what do you, what do they typically get when they've invested with you? Uh, so. When they sort of join us, we'll basically make a recommendation based on their circumstances of the right strategy. Now, that will, like you mentioned, typically involve a mix of different ETFs. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for, for, for the listeners who don't know much about ETFs, although there's probably not that many these days, um, they are instruments that are listed on the stock exchange, similar to a share, um, only rather than buying one share at a time or you know one bond or another asset at a time, you, you can buy hundreds, if not thousands, with a single trade. So mm. um, there is an ETF, for instance, that follows the ASX 300. So when you buy this ETF... Um, you get access to 300 companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- there's also an ETF that covers the largest few hundred bonds in Australia. Um, so e- ETFs are a brilliant way of getting very fast diversification across lots of different companies. Um, you know, very, very easily, but also in a very transparent way because they always publish what's inside that ETF. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a pretty cost effective way too. Um, and, and as well as cost effective in a tax effective way, which is something a lot of people don't understand. Mm. Um, so when clients, um, sign up with us and, and, and then invest, what they will see when they log into their dashboard or the app, um, is a portfolio of several ETFs. And, and that will be some Australian shares, um, some global shares, um, some emerging market shares, um, some bonds and, and some gold. Um, now, these assets all serve different purposes in your portfolio. So shares are, are, are kind of known as growth assets and mm-hmm. they typically go well, you know, in, in, in periods when you know, the economy is going well or, when, you know, when markets are going well. Um, and, and generally over long periods of time, they have a higher return. Um, but they also come with higher risk. Um, and, and one way to um, help cushion some of that risk is to own assets that move in the opposite direction of shares. Um, and, and the kind of most commonly um, cited example is bonds. So usually bonds go in the opposite direction of shares. Um, in fact, over the last, I think, 30 years, there's been seven years when Australian shares have fallen. And every one of those seven years, bonds have risen, mm. <laughs> um, including last year. Um, so, you know, they have a pretty good track record of helping to absorb some of those losses when shares go down. And we believe for, you know, for people that don't have infinite time horizons, then having some bonds in your portfolio um, makes good sense um, because it helps to regulate and manage your behavior when markets fall. Um, because, you know, a lot of people when markets fall end up doing the wrong thing. Mm. If you have a portfolio that falls 20 or 30%, there's a good chance you're going to sell. Um, if, especially if you're a first time investor or haven't been through the market cycle before. Um, so having some bonds in there just reduces your chance of having um, big drawdowns in your portfolio. Mm. You mentioned risk. How do you think about risk? Um, I've read a few things from your website, but I'm just interested to get your take of how you view risk in, in the portfolio and what you do to mitigate it. Yeah, risk is something that means different things to different people. And it's something that, yeah, it's very hard to describe to an average person um, because, yeah, risk to most people seems like a, a bad thing. Um, so, but there's also like positive risk as well. You know, there's the risk that you, you'll make a lot of money and, and in, in investing risk is both on the downside and the upside. Um, you know, for the average person risk, um, they probably perceive as the chance of losing money. Um, and, and probably our definition of risk isn't too far off that. Um, but it's not losing money altogether. It's the chance of losing money, you know, over you know, a period of time. So, you know, risk in the share market is often seen as like volatility of the share market and volatility um, of the share market is basically measured by the kind of ups and downs uh, it's probably the, the mm. easiest way to describe it over periods of mm. time um, now 
you know, on an average year, the Australian share market has quite a few ups and downs. You, you probably expect it to fall five or ten percent at some point during the year, um, but most years it still ends up. So, mm-hmm. if you just invest in a in a portfolio of Australian shares, you, you actually have to wear a fair amount of risk during a year, um, and and quite often you should expect to be losing five or ten percent of your capital, and that's perfectly normal. Um, now, if you add some diversifying defensive assets into a portfolio. Um, you can reduce that volatility or that ups and downs in the year by quite a large amount. Um, so we've compared um, a portfolio of only Australian shares, for example, to mm-hmm. the portfolios that we recommend, and, and we're able to reduce the ups and downs or the volatility by somewhere between 30 and 60%. Hmm. Um, so, And in doing that, um, investors don't have to give up too much return. Um, but that's also an important point is um, there is a, a very well understood and, and long term relationship with investing between risk and returns. Uh, and I think it's something that everyone needs to understand when they invest is in order to earn higher returns, you, you necessarily have to take higher risk. And if you don't think you're taking higher risk, um, you are and it's probably hidden somewhere. <laughs> um, and, and so... Yeah, if, if people want to earn higher risk, they generally need to own more growth assets mm-hmm. in their portfolio. Um, but our view is that doesn't mean you have to own exclusively growth assets and, and that there is some sense in having a mix of, um, you know, some cushions in your portfolio too. I'm interested because your prior history, your history is in active investing. What's the matter with active investing versus, say, using ETFs as a way to gain exposure to markets? Great question. And and like, absolutely. So I came from a career of picking stocks and mm-hmm. like that was my career. That's what I focused on 24-7. And, and um, the, the data basically supports that there's a small group of people in the world. Um, you know, markets are very competitive these days and mm-hmm. there's thousands of people analyzing every company announcement and every, you know, piece of information from the Federal Reserve, you know, every millisecond. Um, now there's a small group of people in the world um, who are able to use that information to earn a return that's better than the market return um, you know however over time that group has been getting smaller and smaller um, and, and actually if you start to include the costs that these people incur in, in um, implementing their decisions um, you know that that group that can beat the market is actually quite tiny um, so I think there's a misconception out there about how easy it is to beat the market and you know probably the media doesn't do a great job because you know when people read the newspaper they, they I think they feel like they're getting information that's going to help them achieve some sort of edge over the market um, but really by the time something's got into the newspaper or even you know online or it, it, by the time most people have seen any information that information is already you know well into the price of over security or if it's not it's still very difficult to earn a return using that information um, to beat the market um, now that's something you know I, I realized from sort of being involved in the market for a long time um, that doesn't mean those people don't exist and, and there are some brilliant people out there that are able to beat the market but most people don't have access to those people either um, because they're either working at funds that are closed because they already have all the money they need or they're trading for themselves because they're so smart they don't need your money. Um, and it's a question you should always ask is why does, you know, if, if this person thinks they're so good at beating the market, why do they need my money? Surely there's other money out there that they already have access to. Mm. Um, so, yeah, my view that has formed from investing for yeah, 20 or so years is, is that it's very hard to beat the market. And some people can, but for the average person, there's no need to bother. And it's very it's much easier for them to earn the market return, um, which then will incur lower costs, you know, probably lower stress and, and probably lower time. Mm-hmm. And so why wouldn't you 
um, piggyback off the fact that you know markets go up over the long run. It's pretty hard to time it, and it's pretty hard to pick stocks. and And, and you can basically earn um, the market return, you know, with lower cost, lower time, and lower effort. I don't, I don't know why people wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, it seems to make too much sense, right? Um, one thing that struck me and I, when I was looking through the information on your website, which is great, one thing that struck me is plenty of the portfolios have exposure to gold. I'm interested to know, first of all why you hold gold and also is it something that uh, an ordinary investor should be including in their portfolio i mean you, you've got in the, your portfolio so i'm just curious yeah, so it's a controversial it. one and it's yeah. one we often get questions from clients about um interestingly we only ever get questions from clients when the gold price is falling and not when the gold price is rising of so i mean it tells you something about you know pe- people's biases when they're investing yeah. they they only want to own things that are going up um, now, gold isn't something in our portfolios that you actually want to go down. Uh, uh, gold really is an insurance policy in your portfolio. Now, uh, like we've just discussed how shares and, and bonds often go in opposite directions, mm-hmm. and, and they often do, and, and that's why bonds are a great diversifier, um, but not always. Now, there's times in history where bonds and shares go in the same direction, um, and, and historically, there are times where gold has um, been required in a portfolio to provide you with that diversification. So there's a there's a few possibilities, and and part of investing is actually not trying to, in our view, not trying to predict what's going to happen in the future, but trying to prepare for all sorts of outcomes, uh, and and ensure that you can, um, yeah, you can survive, and your portfolio will survive, you know, regardless of what the future holds. Um, so there are definitely possibilities um, that you know in in the future shares and bonds can both fall at the same time and and there's certain sort of economic scenarios that lead to that happening and and generally when that happens um, gold goes up by a lot Uh, and and that's what's going to be the savior in your portfolio and and so you know this is something that's sort of backed up by our analysis and data but but generally bonds um, bonds won't always protect you and and in those times that they don't you want some gold Um, now like last year wasn't a bad example it wasn't an extreme example Um, but last year out of all of the assets in our portfolios um, gold rose by the most Um, it was up eight percent in australian dollar terms in 2018 um, and bonds i I think are up three or four percent so gold doubled the return on bonds Mm. and and actually by having gold in our portfolios it was the only reason why all of our portfolios had a positive return last year Um, so in our view and and the data um, you know backs it up gold is a valuable asset Um, should people own it Again, it depends on their their strategy and their time frame and other factors. But as a long term investor, um, and as, it's something I think has the ability to protect um, your purchasing power in the future. And I mean, a, I think a brilliant example is you know Australia is historically a country that has a pretty stable currency. You know, even though the Aussie dollar has fallen from you know a dollar ten maybe five or eight years ago to wherever it is now seventy cents, mm-hmm. but you know we haven't had you know hyperinflation or anything. Um, however, there are you know plenty of countries out there, um, you know, like Russia or like Argentina, who have seen mass depreciations of their currencies mm. for all sorts of different economic and political reasons. Um, now, in, in that sort of scenario, um, you want to own an asset that uh, maintains its purchasing power. And often equities, shares or bonds don't maintain their purchasing power. Um, whereas in those countries, when they've had huge currency devaluations, um, gold has managed to keep its value. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a part of your portfolio that you actually want to be down. 
um, because if you're losing money on gold, it probably means you're making money overall. Yeah. Um, but it's a part of your portfolio that um, will allow you to sleep at night and, and, and we think that's valuable. To put some context around it, if you had, say, the perfectly balanced portfolio, not that there is one, but let's say there's a perfectly balanced portfolio, what allocation, what percentage would be invested in gold? So I've read a lot of studies on this and we've done our own research and, and it's actually, the, the data is very dependent on which time period you select, which, okay. you know, it, it's a pretty useful information for anyone doing backtesting. Uh, you often see backtested stories, but, you know, they've chosen a period from, let's say, 1930 onwards. So they've, they've missed a big event. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with gold, it's the same. So based on the time period you select, the data will suggest different allocations. I've seen um, research that has shown that you should have 20% of your portfolio allocated to gold. I've also seen plenty of research that says 0%. Um, you know, I, I think probably in that range for most people is you know what's probably going to be you know sensible. Um, for instance, at the moment for our clients, it's around 12.5% mm. of, of the portfolios. Now, that may seem like a lot, um, but... Again, it's the only reason the portfolios all added um, were up in performance last year. So, um, yeah, it may be a drag when markets rise, but you know, then it's going to protect you when markets fall. I'm presuming that the, the exposure to gold is done through an ETF, as um, is the exposure for shares and bonds, etc. Let's jump into how you pick these ETFs. What are you looking for? Um, and maybe some takeaways for some listeners. Yeah, maybe some some, some granular ideas on how they can go about thinking. Sure. About their ETFs. Well, I think let's start with gold because we've been talking about gold, but it's a bit of an unusual one, and but it brings up an interesting point, which is that one of the beauties of ETFs I see versus you know, other um, you know, instruments that you can invest in um, is that historically they're physically backed. And by that I mean um, they actually own the underlying things that they say they own. So if it's an ASX 300 ETF, it actually owns all of those shares. Um, if it's a gold ETF, it, it should actually own the gold bars. Um, now, the great thing about ETFs, or at least 95% of them in Australia, is that they're physically backed by um, the thing on their label. Um, and, and gold is one of those, um, you know, one of those which is quite interesting. So the gold ETF that we invest in um, actually owns the physical gold bars to back up the gold ETF, mm. and they're held in a vault under the Thames in London. Okay. Um, and, you know, so you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's quite interesting, but um, there's actually a then creation and redemption process with a lot of these ETFs. And, you know, it's not possible if you're just buying a few hundred dollars worth. But with most ETFs, um, you can actually demand the, the physical, um, you know, underlying investments um, by trading in your securities. Um, so if you have enough of these gold ETFs and, and you, you know, want some gold, you can go and say, hey, I, I want to trade this piece of paper for the bullion um, and we'll do the same with shares or any other asset. So um, that should give people a lot of confidence because, you know, one of the lessons from the financial crisis is that even if you think that you own something, there's often another risk, which is counterparty risk. Yeah, you you don't know that the person who's promised the thing that you own um, actually owns the thing that they promised mm. that you that you own. Um, so ETFs remove to a large extent that risk that in the event of the world collapsing, um, you won't be able to pull out what you own. And, and this is beneficial in a lot of ways. One of them is that ETFs almost always trade very closely to their net tangible assets. Mm-hmm. So in any listers that have looked at uh, licks before, listed investment companies, will understand the frustration that they often trade a long way away from their tangible assets. And it mm-hmm. seems a, like a very frustrating and, and curious thing that, hey, I've, I've bought this thing that you know should reflect the value inside it, but it's trading at a different value. 
Um, ETFs um, solve that problem through this what's called redemption and creation process. Um, so that's so to, to go back to your question, one of the things we look for is ETFs that are physically backed and don't have counterparty risk mm. um, because that's one risk that we don't believe investors need to take. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, in Australia, almost all ETFs um, are physically backed. And if they're not, they actually need to carry the word synthetic in their name. Um, now, there's a few genuine reasons why an ETF may need to be synthetic. Um, my favorite example is oil. Um, so it's possible to invest in the oil ETF on the ASX. So I think the code is OOO. Um, but it's, it's very difficult for the creator of this oil ETF to keep you know, huge numbers of barrels of oil there mm. ready for you in case you want them. I, I guess they'd have to hire some sort of ship, keep it offshore and just sit those barrels on the ship. Very expensive. Um, so for the oil ETF, it's actually structured as a financial um, contract. I think it's with JP Morgan. Um, but investors in that need to understand not only do they own oil, but they actually have a, um, a contract with JP Morgan. Mm. <laughs> so if something happens to JP Morgan, then, you know, there is some extra risk for them. Mm-hmm. So we probably spent a bit too much time on that area, but the other areas we look for are, are obviously costs. So one of the big benefits of ETFs is that they are low cost mm-hmm. and every dollar that you save when you invest is a, in a dollar that goes back into your returns. So that's one. Um, liquidity is another one. Um, now this has a few kind of layers to it, but liquidity is about, um, you know, how easy it is to get in and out of an ETF. Um, and, and, and it, it's partly to do with how much it's trading, but also partly to do with, um, the underlying investment that's investing in. But yeah, that one, I, yeah, I won't go into more detail, but that's another area we look mm-hmm. at. Um, and another area is what I call slippage. So slippage is the cost of getting in and out of an ETF. Um, when you're buying a share, people will recognize that you need to cross called crossing the spread when you go and and buy off the bestseller mm-hmm. and with etfs it's the same you buy them off the stock exchange and you have to cross across and buy them off someone um, now ideally you don't want to have to pay too much there because that's just lost money that you give away immediately um, so that's another factor that we look at mm-hmm. so yeah there's a whole bunch of different metrics that we look at um, when deciding you know which which etfs belong in our portfolio um, you know, there's other, other factors like how well that ETF represents the asset class that we're looking to get exposure to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but then we consider all of these factors and, and then pick, um, yeah, pick an ETF to represent each asset class. I mean, we publish an ETF research paper as well, which, mm. which listeners are welcome to download. It's, it's free on our website and covers 150 different ETFs. Mm, I've read it. It's, it's great. Um, one of the things that I have also read from, from you is, uh, your coverage of smart beta or um we, and we've had some etf providers on the show and we've talked about this in the past effectively rules-based investing so they don't provide the same uh return or uh, risk profile as say a traditional index fund can you explain why perhaps none of them are in your portfolio sure so in, in my like as you explained, like smart beta is like a new style of ETF, or not not necessarily ETF, but a new way of investing, um, and, and it's basically sold as a, as a a way of being able to still have low costs, but then have the potential to beat the market. Mm. Um, and and my point when you know when you're investing is if if anything ever has the potential to beat the market, it has roughly equal potential to not beat the market. Um, now these ETFs um, try and come, come come up with formulas or um, you know with factors they call them um, that they think will allow them to beat the market. 
Um, the problem is there's all there's lots of these ETFs doing the same thing and they often have the same factors and those factors will work for a while and then they won't work for a while. They're, they're actually cyclical. Mm-hmm. You know, the same as when you're investing, growth stocks will go well for a while and then value stocks will go for a while. Um, the problem is it's very hard to know when they're going to go well and for how long. Mm. So there's a lot of people that have been on the wrong side of the value versus growth um, dynamic for the last five years, a lot of value fund managers um, who blame, oh, the, these expensive stocks just keep on getting more expensive. Um, you know, my point is that's what happens in markets. Expensive stocks get more expensive. They can get more expensive for a long time. Mm. Um, so going back to your point on, on smart BTRF ETFs, the reason we don't own them is generally they're higher cost than um, traditional vanilla ETFs. Um, and they don't actually have a track record of being able to um, produce better returns. Now, often they will advertise that they can earn better returns, um, but that goes back to, to the point we were making, we were discussing earlier around selective backtesting. Mm. So you will never see a product actually ever in, in the financial world that shows a bad backtest. Mm. Um, and in, in finance space, we know this, is, we call this p-hacking, which means that you can basically create a, back, a good backtest to make anything look good. And that for anyone that's interested, there's some fabulous studies that have been done on lo- online to kind of, um, you know, to, to point folly in this by creating a portfolio of companies whose CEOs last names start with A and, and showing that these stocks outperform over the mm. long run. And, and unfortunately, you know, there's, there's all sorts of, you know, ways to concoct a portfolio that can look better than the market portfolio. Um, but it always means that you're taking different risks. And so the way I like to think about it is when you invest in the whole market, um, you're investing in all of the different factors that can affect share prices. You know, you're you're investing in growth, in in value, in momentum. Um, you know, in mean reversion. You're investing in you know management processes. You're investing in you know everything that every investor in the world is considering. As soon as you start investing in in smart beta, then you're automatically saying, look, some of these factors don't matter, or some factors mean more than others. Um, and, and then that's just your opinion or the opinion of the product maker. Um, and and that opinion may work for a while. It may not. Um, it's just a toss of the coin. Mm. Comes back to your point earlier: is if they're that good, then why are they asking for my money? Well, that's. I mean, I think that's a great point. Is like with these smart beta ETFs. I mean, if they're so smart, um, you know, they wouldn't be asking for retail money. They'd be selling the IP to a hedge fund um, who would make billions of dollars off them. Mm. So, yeah, it, it, that is always a good question for people to ask: is you know, if this product is so good at beating the market, why does it need me? Mm-hmm. All right, let's move to another. Um fond aspect um of the i suppose the stock bot universe and, and where you some of the things that you cover cover and, and one of those things is um super funds and the performance fees and just overall outcomes of the biggest super funds in australia and you produce this report called the fat cat funds report and it's really good it's a really good read it's also really good visually it breaks down the key ideas um you don't need to be a finance guru to to Get, wrap your head around it. It's, it's very simple, and, and and but it's also hard hitting, which is um, how I describe it. Because there's not many that, as far as I'm aware, that there's not many other reports like it. At least not that anyone on the street can get their hands on. So I don't want to time timestamp this conversation too much, but uh, perhaps you can tell us what's wrong um, with the super system and and why it's important that people take the time to focus on 
Sure. Well, I think the time stamping issue isn't going to be an issue because the, this <laughs> fat cat report is something we've done for five years now. And it's every year we find the exact same thing, which, which makes writing the report both easier and harder. Easier because, you know, I know what the results are going to be and, and they seem to be the same every year. Harder because every year we publish this report, which exposes how many terrible super funds there are that are wasting tens of billions of dollars. And, and yet these funds just continue to, 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 to survive. The, you know, the people running these funds continue to pay themselves millions of dollars. The, the members who are losing this money continue to lose it and, and don't switch funds. So unfortunately, you know, something I've discovered, which has made me quite sad, is even in, in publishing a, you know, hard hitting report that gets good media attention and, and, you know, we've done some, you know, some fun skits to kind of expose what's going on as well. Even with all of this, um, it, it doesn't seem to have a lot of impact on the industry, which has made me come to the realization this year that actually, you know, as much as I, I, I believe in free markets, like superannuation is an area that I believe the government needs to be uh, more involved in to actually get good outcomes. So unfortunately, people aren't going to do it themselves, you know, from all different reasons, you know, partly lack of edu- financial education, partly apathy, partly confusion. Um, there's all sorts of reasons, but p- basically most people won't do anything. Now, for the listeners that actually want to do something, um, the, the good news is you, you don't need to do that much. And, and so this report that we, we publish every year looks at thousands of different super funds and, and, and you know, we've grown it over many years and uh, I won't labor on how hard it is to get that data, but yeah, trust me that the, the funds aren't very forthcoming with actually sharing this information. Um, and for good reason, because every year we discover that most funds um, do much worse than just a simple index fund. Mm. And, and these funds are, are, are paying out hundred, uh, tens of billions of dollars in fees to fund managers to pick stocks and time the market. Um, and, and yet they don't deliver the results. Um, so this year's report, we found that 96% of balanced funds um, did worse than a simple indexed balance fund after fees and taxes. And that's pretty phenomenal. Like, uh, to me, that was probably one of the most hard-hitting statistics we found, um, you know, which should really compel everyone in their super to be, um, you know, in our view, doing two things, which is one, um, look for a fund that um, reflects the right amount of growth versus defensive assets for your age. Um, and, and we published in the report what we think that is. But for a young person, generally, you want more growth assets because you've got more time on your side. Mm-hmm. And, and as you approach retirement, you probably want to dial down the risk a little bit. Um, you know, but that's a, that's a pretty simple thing for most people to work out. And then the second thing you need to look at is the fund with the absolute lowest costs you can find um, because costs really, really do matter. Um, and, and sadly, um, you know, costs in super aren't really coming down anywhere near as fast as they should in this country. So we, we pay about $30 billion a year in super fees. Um, there are some estimates from the Grattan Institute and, and a few others who have studied this that show that if the majority of that was indexed, first of all, most people would be better off. Um, but secondly, the reason most people would be better off was because that 30 billion in fees might be only 10 billion in fees. So that would be $20 billion of extra money Australians would have in their pockets every year. It's also $20 billion, um, less that the government will need to spend on um, social security benefits. Mm. Um, so there's a huge potential benefit for the country of getting super right. Um, but uh, yes, uh, sadly, I, I believe it does require some level of government intervention because, um, yeah, for, for many different reasons, people aren't taking the action they need to. Mm. Did you, you mentioned skits there. I, I think I saw one where you've made a trophy and you've handed it to one of the banks. Is that right? 
So, yeah, this was in 2016 and the video is on YouTube for anyone that wants to find it. You can search, uh, I think it's Fat Cat, Fat Cat Fun Video. Um, but yeah, we wanted to, I guess, poke a bit of fun at the fact that like that we work in an industry that's very fast to congratulate itself when it does well. You know, there are lots of finance awards, you know, patting fund managers on the back for their, for their performance. Um, but unfortunately, our study shows that, you know, only 4% of fund managers even deserve a pat on the back. And that, that's not something that the general public would, um, would, would see or would even think. Mm. Um, so, you know, we also wanted to um, raise awareness with consumers about the funds that were doing the worst by them. So the funds that were charging the most and delivering the worst results. Um, so, yeah, we, we thought it would be a fun idea to... Um, you know, in a similar vein to all of the, you know, fund manager awards, um, create an award, um, which is the, the Fat Cat Fund Award. And, and, and that award came with a giant trophy and a giant check um, of how much that fund had ripped off their members by. <laughs> um, and, and we went, um, I had the help of the, the chaser guys. Okay. Um, we went to the lobbies of, um, you know, these fund managers to, to, li- to deliver their prize. Um, yeah, much to our surprise, they 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 weren't that willing to accept them. <laughs> That's great. Okay, um, one thing that you've written about recently is this idea of balanced funds and the lack of transparency that goes with the underlying holdings. Can you um, elaborate on that? And I suppose the incentive for the super fund to do what they're doing, and why it might be a bit difficult for ordinary investors to to see what they're doing. Sure. So this is something that comes up in our super fund analysis every year. And something we really believe is important is if you're doing research on super funds, you need to um, compare apples to apples. Mm. So you need to compare like for like things to understand how they're going. And so we put a big effort when we're doing this research into trying to only compare funds that are similar. Um, Because there's no point comparing a fund that has 90% shares to a fund that has 10% shares. Because of course, it's going to perform differently. Mm. In good years, the 90% shares is going to do better. And in bad years, the 10% shares is going to do better. You know, you don't need someone to do research to tell you that. Mm. Um, But something we come across every year, and it seems to be getting worse, is that First of all, it's very difficult to get that information about, you know, where funds are investing. Um, but then funds are, are coming up with new categories of investments that they provide very little transparency on um, that are, are questionable in terms of where they've put them. So, you know, I, I think three areas that, you know, we're quite suspicious about at the moment are property, infrastructure and alternative investments. Mm-hmm. Now, these are three assets that... You know, if you looked 10 or 20 years ago, you, you would generally find them in the growth investment group. Um, now, they may not provide the same level of growth as shares, um, but by growth uh, investments, it really means that it's a risky investment. It's not a defensive investment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, generally, these investments move in the same direction as the stock market, not in the opposite direction. Um, and they also have lots of other risks. So, for instance, with infrastructure, if you're buying toll roads or something like that, um, if, if all of your investors want their money tomorrow or next week, it's very hard to get your money out. Um, and, and one of the characteristics of a defensive asset should be that you should be able to get your money out quickly. Mm. That's part of what makes it defensive. Uh, what we've seen recently is a lot of funds are now categorizing um, property, infrastructure and alternatives, which is a, it's kind of a catch, a catch all group yeah. for lots of different strategies. Um, they're counting these either wholly or partially as defensive assets. Um, now, in our view, this is ex- 
extremely misleading in many in some cases you know quite misleading in, in other cases um, but we, we believe or I believe one of the reasons that funds are doing this is to game the rating system um, so listeners will probably be aware of companies like super ratings and chant West because their uh, ratings often get published and, and they they often get a lot of airplay on the news around who are the top 10 or top five super funds out there. Mm. Um, now, these fun, uh, these research companies in their analysis, they basically take whatever the funds give them in terms of the asset mix. So they basically trust whatever the funds tell them. And actually, there's very little guidance from the regulators, um, APRA and ASIC, on you know how to categorize these assets. So the funds have a lot of flexibility. The ratings agencies just buy whatever they're given by the funds. And then the consumers trust whatever they're given mm. by the ratings agencies. The problem is that now a lot of the funds that are in these top lists, um, in our view, um, don't belong in those lists because they're hiding risk. Um, so they're taking a lot more risk than they've advertised mm. um, and they're getting away with it. Um, and they're not, they're not forthcoming in publishing more information about exactly what they're investing in or what their methodology is for categorizing assets. Um, and this is making it very difficult for consumers to compare. But, but it's also meeting that the people that consumers trust, which are these ratings agencies, are, are potentially publishing a lot of misleading information. You wrote something recently about the three ways that you'd fix the super system. One of them was to publish, um, to have a database run by the government. Can you can you elaborate on some of those recommendations that you would have if you could have the opportunity? Sure. So yeah, I mean, one is it goes to exactly what we were discussing is like transparency is horrendous. So f- for this year's report, I had two analysts, you know, super smart analysts with finance and economics degree work on this full time, I think for two months. And even these guys were bamboozled by the data and information and a lot of the product statements by these funds, which, you know, for the average person, they've got absolutely no hope. So it's so difficult to collate and compare information between funds. Consumers have no chance. Now, look, to give them any sort of hope, these funds should be giving all of this information to some central body um, that publishes it and makes it available. You know, that, that shouldn't be us. You know, it shouldn't be us having to scour all of these funds' websites for that information. These these funds should be obligated to giving it to some sort of government agency and, and, and that agency publishing it. So anyone can you know, essentially do what it took my two analysts to do in two months. Anyone should be able to do in 10 minutes. Mm. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the super industry you know, aren't, aren't that keen to improve transparency because um, you know, it, it might uncover a lot of skeletons in the closet and, and show that their performance hasn't been as good as you know, they've advertised. Mm. Um, but that's one we think the government should do. I mean, the other one goes to the actual process of um, allocating default super. So you know, most people in Australia, they just essentially get the fund that they're given by their first employer. You know, your, your listeners are probably more engaged and have picked their own super fund, but a lot of people don't do that and they get what they're given. And the problem with that is that there is a, a lot of terrible funds out there. Um, and, and a lot of those terrible funds are default funds. So in Australia, there's a little over a hundred default funds out there. Um, there are some ones that are doing pretty well. Um, there are also some ones that are doing horribly. Um, now there, there is no correlation between the ones that are doing well and, 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 you know, big inflows or sometimes there is, but there's also no correlation between the ones that are doing badly and are seeing a lot of money leaving, which means that, you know, unfortunately people aren't making the right decisions. Um, but also all of these funds are charging way too much and, and there's very little price competition. 
Um, so these funds don't compete on price because people don't understand how important price is. Mm. You know, most people, when they hear that their fund is 1.2% in fees, they think that's similar to 0.5% because they're both very low numbers. But they don't comprehend that, that because of the, the, the value of compounding over the long run, that you know, a percent or two difference could mean a few hundred thousand dollars at retirement. Mm. People just don't get that. So you know, one of my other policy suggestions um, is that the government needs to think of a way to reintroduce more price competition um, because ultimately the evidence you know, conclusively shows that lower pricing is better, you know, lower fees is better. Two ways they could do it, run a public tender, so basically go out to all the fund managers out there at the moment. They obviously set some sort of criteria for you know, what capabilities they need, um, but then say, okay, you guys, you guys bid for default money. Mm. And I promise you they're not going to be bidding at 1% or 1.5% like they're currently charging because they won't get any money at that price level. They'll be bidding probably at around you know, 0.1% to 0.3% per year. Um, and that will lead to no worse returns and about 10 to $20 billion of cost saving every year. Um, so that's one recommendation. Or if if the government doesn't want to do that, you know, the, the alternative is to nationalize default super. So it should just go into a low cost index fund. Um, you know, the evidence supports that takes very little to run. And actually, even though it may sound like a crazy idea, it's been done successfully in other places in the world. Um, so one of my favorite examples is in Nevada, their state pension fund, mm-hmm. um, which runs $41 billion. So it's pretty big. It would make it within the top 10 super funds in Australia. Um, its total payroll is one person. Uh-huh. Um, one guy sits at a desk, brings in a sandwich every day, invests in index funds and sits on his hands. Um, now, this guy is, has one of the best performing pension funds in America um, because indexing <laughs> works and because doing nothing well. works. Um, and, and this is really what the government should be doing here as well. We shouldn't be, um, you know, we, we shouldn't be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars employing CEOs of you know, 50 different industry funds and 50 different retail funds. That's just wasted money. Um, and, and there's no evidence to support that's adding extra value to members. You mentioned there, you talk about like fees and almost, it's almost wastage more than fees is what probably what we could call it. I've been approached by a few different investors in recent times about starting, and I believe they are good investors in, in an active sense. They've spoken to me about starting funds, which are zero management fee. In your opinion, Charging a zero management fee and let's say it's a 20% outperformance fee of some hurdle. What do you think the outcomes would be? We quoted, well, you quoted 4% earlier on for um, active investors outperforming. How do you think something like that would go if we could get a statistical well, I measure? Think, I mean, conceptually, it makes a lot of sense. I, I think it, it much, the, one of the problems with the investment industry is that the incentives of the people providing the capital aren't aligned with the people managing the capital. And this is one of the biggest problems. The guys managing the capital have a huge incentive to just grow their assets because mm-hmm. a large amount of their fees just comes from growing the assets. Um, the problem for the people providing the capital to invest is that they uh, wear 100% of the risk, they wear 100% of the cost, but they only take maybe 40% of the return. Mm. Um, so th- there's just not the right incentives. Now, I, th- I think conceptually it, it's a fabulous idea for active managers to um, you know, be considering business models that rely less on um, you know, ongoing management fees. And maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's not zero. It could be cost recovery or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really focusing on their outperformance fee. Um, but there's other considerations that need to come in there as well. So one of them is high watermark. You know, the problem with a lot of active funds in Australia is that they don't have a high watermark. And that means that in a good year, they get paid. 
Um, but then they can just you know forget about bad years because they don't need to get above their best performance in order to start earning fees again. Um, you know, this is, there's a few listed investment companies that have this exact problem, which I think is a huge misalignment um, between those providing the capital mm. and those managing it. But people seem to accept this, but but it causes all sorts of bad decision making. Um, so yeah, I mean conceptually, I think it's a great idea. It would probably weed out a lot of the um, you know poor performing managers. Um, but still, a- um, active management is, in- is an industry which is all about optionality for fund managers. So, you know, if you can get a few good years of performance at the start, um, you're able to sell that message and, and scale up big time. Um, you know, even though your investors won't realize until much later whether those first few years were just luck rather than skill. Mm. So, you know, anyone can go to the casino and, and you know, get uh, read three times in a row. Um, but but that doesn't mean they have any extra skill. But you know what, what we have is an industry where you know people are rolling the dice every day, and and once they have a bit of a streak, they're going out there and massively ramping up the amount of money they have because they're able to sell a great story. Um, but but in many cases, it, it's later proven that they were just um, they just fluked it. Mm. Mm. Okay, fair point. Um, I get the impression from you that you're an avid reader, or at least you have been. At times, you do a lot of research. Um, you seem like a very smart guy. For some of our beginner investors out there, or even some more advanced, what are some good books or resources that you would recommend? Uh, I mean, it depends how people like to consume their information. So, I mean, I, I like listening to podcasts as well as reading books. And uh, yeah, there's some great investment ones out there now, and, and there's a growing number, you know, yours included. One of my favorite US-based ones, um, which I think is fabulous because it, you know, interviews some, you know, some investors that are much more knowledgeable than than I am and, and have been in the industry a lot longer is called Masters in Business, oh, yeah. um, you know, which I think is very well um, very well done and and really there's some great one liners that people can can um, yeah can learn from from some you know you know really well regarded investors so you know that's one of my favorites and I learn a lot from that one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in terms of books, I mean, when I was growing up, a lot of the books I read were actually around trading and, and sort of short term. Um, but there's also, I think, a lot of good books to read if you actually just want to become a great long term investor and, and grow your wealth. Um, you know, I, I think Thinking Fast and Slow, even though it's not mm-hmm. directly an investment book, um, for anyone to be successful managing money, um, you know, the behavioral side is, is equally important. Um, so that, that's a great one. And, and Nudge, I suppose, as well. They're both mm-hmm. great behavioral books. Um, yeah, I, I should probably plug you know, uh, uh, um, one of my idols in the industry, um, Jack Bogle, unfortunately passed away recently, mm-hmm. and, and he's written some great books, as has Charlie Ellis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the benefits of you know, low cost index investing. Um, so the Little Book of Common Sense Investing is one that John um, that John Bogle uh, wrote, um, and, and is a good one. So I think they're a good starting point for anyone. Great. And then, where else can people find out more about you? Uh, about me, they can, they're welcome to visit the Stockspot website, especially if they want more research on super or ETFs as well, um, which is just stockspot.com.au, um, or, or find me on LinkedIn, um, as well. You're on Twitter as well? Or Twitter as well, that's yep. true. Yeah, that's good Twitter feed. I think I follow you. I almost certainly yep, do. It's good. Right. Um, okay, so final question. If you go back and tell a younger you just one thing about investing, what would it be? 
Look, I think it would be to have a bit more humility when I was like a younger sort of whippersnapper in the investment industry. So I think there's a big temptation when you're starting to learn about investing to think you know a lot more than you do. Um, You know, it's it's got a scientific name, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Mm -hmm. Um, And I definitely fell into that camp. So my first few years of investing, I I thought I knew everything when really I just knew a speck in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think if I was to give advice to my younger self, it would be to appreciate how how much you don't know um but you know see that as an opportunity for learning <laughs> great advice chris thank you so much for joining me on the show oh thanks for having me on the podcast thanks again for tuning into the australian investors podcast for further episodes head to www.raskfinance.com to provide feedback nominate a guest or hear from me you can find me on twitter with the handle at owen rask cheers to our financial futures For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.